You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.aynrand.org. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the online journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, we're discussing the complex issues and events shaping our world from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, uh, a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. You can visit our publications at newideal.aynrand.org. And you can join the Q&A through Zoom. So this is what you see on screen here. Um, it's zoom.us forward slash join. <clears throat> and the meeting ID, for those of you who can't see this and you're just listening, it's 812-506-718. And today our topic is uh, <clears throat> how the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, has the COVID-19 pandemic caused us to question our moral framework? And I'm joined today by my colleague Ankar Gatte. Hi, Ankar. And stop sharing my screen here for, for a second. There we go. Hey there. Uh, yeah, and the reason why I wanted to talk about this, I mean, the basis for the talk really is uh, the March 30 um, article that came out in the Washington Post. Originally, it's up uh, on Bloomberg right now um, called how, it's called How Coronavirus is Shaking Up the Moral Universe, and it's written by uh, John Authors. And what the piece really addresses is it addresses a number of moral frameworks or what he calls frame, uh, philosophies of social justice. And he looks at a number of different moral frameworks uh, and asks, well, and points out the fact that some of these moral frameworks are in operation in people's thinking. Uh, when they think about how should we approach the pandemic and should we balance rights and freedoms with people who are sick and poor and so on, and just how to think about it. Um, and the way he puts it, he says, the corona, this is a quote from the article, it, it opens up like this, quote, the coronavirus pandemic is a test. It's a test of medical capacity and political will, dot, dot, dot. Uh, and it's a, it's a test in the strength of the ideas that humans choose to help them form moral judgments and guide personal and social behavior. The epidemic forces everyone to confront deep questions of human existence. What is right and what is wrong? What can individuals expect from society and what can society expect of them? Should others make sacrifices for me? And vice versa. Is it just to set economic limits to fighting a deadly disease, end quote. So the idea is he's trying to set up the idea that we really need to step back a moment and look at our moral frameworks and in effect question them. Like, am I operating with the right one? Because there are different ones. And I think it is important, uh, not, just in, not just in times of crisis, when it really comes to the fore, where moral issues become very pressing to us uh, in a very open and explicit or public way. Um, but we should be thinking about what moral frameworks we have. And it's not, it's not often something you do to think about what your moral framework is. But there is a way in which the crisis sort of brings this out and it becomes a topic of discussion. Um, and 
what I think is what that's one of the things I think is good about it is that it, it puts on the table the question of our framework and it's often never on the table to think about what the actual framework is. Uh, and what he does is he looks at a number of them. Uh, one of them is uh, the kind of approach taken by John Rawls or what he calls the general Rawlsian type of approach, which he sees manifested. Uh, we, he, basically, he thinks that um, the, the approach taken by most Western countries has been a Rawlsian approach, which he would characterize as you're taking as your standard or your criteria for public action um, the 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 welfare of the, the most vulnerable among us um so you know on, on that kind of way of thinking the idea is yeah i mean we can we can restrict certain personal liberties or we can have um, um lockdowns and things like that that which really affect and cause hardship for other people but that really and that's that's not a great thing but the main thing is uh it, there's the, they're the people that are most vulnerable. And if they're affected uh, negatively, that's that's what really we should have our focus on and not so much um, uh, shrinking amounts of liberty and, and real hardships on our lives and businesses and so on. Um, and he looks at some other ones. We can talk about these more as we go, but one is utilitarianism, where the idea is uh, the idea for social, your criteria for social policy and so on should be the greatest happiness for the greatest number or whatever it is, but it's basically the um, uh, the overall aggregate utility for the whole, not for any particular given individual or group. Uh, and, and according to that approach, the idea is, um, for example, um, if wide-scale lockdowns cause more harm than good for the total aggregate, yeah, maybe it's okay if some people wind up dying because as a result, um, because the overall aggregate utility is is raised or whichever. Um, and he talks a bit about the libertarian, what he calls the libertarian perspective. Uh, and I think rightly he looks back to, well, well, but I'll put it this way. Um, he looks back, what he calls the libertarian tradition, he sees going back at least to the enlightenment figure of John Locke, uh, the defender of individual rights and so on. Uh, John Locke, uh, and he mentions Ayn Rand in this regard uh, as holding that an individual has the right to his own life, to exist for his own sake, and so on. Um, and then he turns to Robert Nozick. Um, so he's that's kind of a wide brush perspective on what he thinks uh, libertarianism is. Um, but the way he sees that moral framework in play is, uh, and I think there's real problems with this, but it's, it's, you know, it's the the, the kid at spring uh, at the at the beach on spring break. You know, if I get Corona, I get Corona. You know, nobody's going to stop me from partying. You know, I'm going to do what I want. Uh, it has effects, whether it's on other people or me. You know, whatever. It's my freedom. It's my liberty. Um, or people gathering, having mass group gatherings and so on, uh, irrespective of any kind of social distancing. We're just going to do what we want. Nobody can tell us what to do. But at any rate, and he looks at another one called communitarianism, but we that's a little less known. Um, yeah, but it, I think it's interesting to, to, to set side by side different kinds of ways and looking at it. One of the things I noticed about it is that, I mean, I, I don't know who's tuning in here, but from an objectivist perspective, I mean, I, I think that much of this is simply altruism and collectivism. You know, the idea that, that the, the moral is in some, somebody's got to sacrifice for someone else, whether it's the minority to the majority or the majority to the most vulnerable or everyone to everyone. 
and that much of the thinking uh, in morality is very collectivistic. In other words, it's not focused on what an individual should do or think or do or, or how he should live. Um, but to think about the, the community, what the, should the community do? How, how should the community deal with the community uh, in terms of groups? Um, but that's basically what we're going to talk about today on, with Ankarna. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what's interesting in the article um, and what it's doing, it's trying to also understand different people's reactions to the pandemic and the various government policies. Um, not only government policies, but many of the policies, especially government policies that have been enacted to try to deal with it. And it's trying to put it in a sort of map the terrain a little bit of why you see some similar but some different responses. And it's part, part of what the, if you read the article and we'll post, uh, it, I mean, it's, you can, if you Google how coronavirus is shaking up the moral universe, you'll, it'll be the first or second uh, hit that you get. It's, so the, the article is, um, I think it, it, it's interesting from the point of view of this is how philosophical ideas come to shape people's thinking. So the author's not a philosopher, but I'm guessing has taken either some straight philosophy classes or has been in a professional ethics uh, in engineering, science, law. And these are the alternatives you're typically given. I, when I was taught um, theories of justice, there was Rawls. So you have a Rawlsian one, you have the utilitarians, and you have something like the libertarians, and then they bring up Nozick and so on. And it's like, this is the terrain and how to think about these issues. And these people are, or these theories or viewpoints are debating among themselves. And that is how everyone is taught in one way or another. And it has an impact on how people think about this, how think of, people think about the then reactions to the pandemic. And from the objectivist point of view and from Ayn Rand's point of view, part of what you brought up, Aaron, is like altruism's not obvious. I don't think it, the word is ever used in the whole essay. And yet when you think about what is being argued in the essay, you can't really understand the, the um, so he's leans toward, I think he personally leans towards the Rawlsian viewpoint, but also says, this seems to be what dominates the response. And I don't think you can get, I think it's right to think that this dominates the response, but I don't think you can understand that without getting that what is behind the, that there's a deeper moral issue behind these different viewpoints, which is altruism. And, yeah, and this is part of the evidence of how saturated people's minds are with altruism. Yeah, and it, it comes out in the article because uh, when he says, uh, when he talks about the Rawlsian perspective and he says, um, you can put, you can capture it as it's the criterion for social action is what we do with the most vulnerable, like how the, they're most affected. That should be the primary concern. And he notes that the, the resonance this has with us has, it, there's something deeper to it. There's something more deep uh, that really explains why this resonates with us. And, and also why um, re certain religious figures that he cites in the piece have also adopted something of a similar uh, kind of language about the most vulnerable among us, the weakest among us and so on. Um, and 
but what he sees as the deeper issue that really resonates with us and explains why um, we, have, we are drawn more toward the Rawlsian view, uh, he puts it as the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you or don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, it depends how you want to put it. Um, and I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what explains um, uh, the appeal that something like Rawls's perspective would have on us. And, but the deeper issue is the altruism. And it's also why um, the, the, it's the connection to religion as well. And, I mean, in our, in our culture, this is Christianity predominantly, the Judeo-Christian view. Um, and that has been much of an issue of it's about sacrifice for some other, it's caring for the poor, uh, and that has really saturated the culture to the extent to which you can look at, you see a, a Rawlsian perspective and a utilitarian and, and a communitarian perspective, and they all seem like here's three different frameworks or perspectives for looking at it. But there's a sense in which it's just one framework. I mean, at, fun, at the fundamental level, that it, it's all uh, driven uh, by an altruist perspective um, and a collectivist perspective. Um, um, but, but let's say a little bit more on the, so the um, I think first talk, we should talk a little bit about the Rawls versus utilitarian and the way he looks at that. And then the bringing in the libertarians as a contrast. So the, uh, one of the things you brought up, which I think is important, is he links Rawls with religion, um, which not that many people do, but I think it is right to link, make that link um, that what Rawls um, emphasizes is what you have to take into account is the most vulnerable, the worst off, and these are different formulations in the piece, putting it in religious terms, that the meek and the poor in spirit shall inherit the earth. Like everything revolves around that. The, the, Rawls is really pushing that. And one quote from the article of linking religion to this is some religious so quoting from the article, some religious leaders have approached the awful dilemmas presented by the coronavirus, just as Rawls would, by taking treatment of the worst off as the criterion for social action, close quote. And if you think of what happened in the US, but I think it's happened in a lot of countries in Europe, in effect, as well, it's that a denial of what is going on with the virus, a downplaying of it, it will miraculously go away. So, so basically doing nothing, no preparations, no getting tests ready, no getting the hospitals ramped up and so on. And then it was, oh, no, but the virus is here and it's actually infecting people and some people are dying and it's skewing towards the very old and people with some pre-existing conditions. Many of the elderly who were dying had those. Have, when you read about it, they have more than one it's not just that they're old, they're old and have some kind of condition. And when it was infecting and, and leading to really severe outcomes for uh, uh, sort of middle-aged people, it was also usually they have an existing, some kind of predisposition, existing condition that is making them more susceptible to it. And all the focus became, we have to prevent this. It's, they're vulnerable. And so, and it, you, so you went quickly from doing nothing to shutting down states and whole economies because it was, well, look, there's the, the vulnerable and so on. They're who we should be paying all attention to. They're dying. 
And there wasn't really any discussion of, okay, we need to isolate them. We need to cordon off them. Maybe we'll support them in their self-isolation, uh, provide them with food, make it easy to order things through delivery services and so on. It was all the focus of everybody's life now has to be adjusted to the most vulnerable. And, and that language was used. And I think that's part of why he's picking out that this seems that in terms of the moral framework, this seems to be guiding us in how we're thinking about this. And I think there's a real truth to that. Um, and then maybe say a few words now, the way about the way he thinks about utilitarianism in this regard, I think is very interesting and, and sort of what's unpalatable about it. Yeah, and this, in, I mean, in discussions, I mean, and what he finds unpalatable about it is often comes up in philosophy classes when every, anytime you discuss utilitarianism. Um, but so he, some of his examples of thinking about this from a utilitarian perspective are, uh, well, there, there are considerations about the, the, the least, the, the least, the most vulnerable. On the other hand, that can't be what drives how we think about social policy and what we're going to do. It's what is the total aggregate of the harm involved? And uh, we have to look at what that is. So when we, we, we can look back at some economic models and so on and say, um, Here's what it looks like. Here's what it's going to look like for the next, say, 10 years uh, for the economy. And you look at uh, all the economic hardship, the, the loss of, of wealth, loss of capital, businesses closing, and people's lives even shortening, in effect, um, as a result of this. You have to take that into consideration. Uh, and it may, it may, and some of our, our policies may result in some of the most vulnerable people dying. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's the way to look at the, the aggregate. And I think what he finds, um, and, and he quoted, uh, there was a, now I don't have the thing, but it was a British minister who apparently said, uh, allegedly said in a private meeting that, you know, well, if, if we need to let or allow people in effect to get sick, uh, to get national, you know, herd immunity or something, if some pensioners die, well, that's, that's, that's what you got to do. Yeah, you know, was, and people, if you want to quote, uh, I have it in front of me. And it, it's so, this has been denied that he actually said yeah, this. That's why I said allegedly, because I'm not sure. Yeah, but it was last weekend, Britain's uh, Sunday Times reported that Dominic Cummings, chief advisor to Prime Minister Boris Johnson, had advocated in private meetings a policy of letting enough people get sick to establish nationwide herd immunity, now quoting from the story, herd immunity, protect letting enough people get sick, uh, sorry, to establish herd immunity, protect the economy, and if that means some pensioners die, too bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean the two baddest. The two, yeah, and I think this is it's and 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 the John authors, the author, you know, uh, says about this. I mean, this caused a bit of an outrage, and because it seems so horribly callous, um, and like if this is if this is the result of the the way in which utilitarians think about the issue, there's something really problematic about it, uh, and I think what's problematic about it is that there's no concern for individuals. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, that's a, the whole collectivized way of thinking about ethics. We look at some aggregate and if it has this bad result for you, you know, so much the worse. Um, uh, and there is a sort of callousness to that a sort of callousness, a callousness in regard to that. Well, but notice also the way he presents it is um, the Rawls in the Rawls framework, people get sacrificed, some people to other people. And in the utilitarian framework, people get sacrificed, some people, to, but 
the Rawlsian one is much more palatable because it's people who are doing better sacrificed to people who are doing worse. And so the, the lives destroyed, and it really is, there are lives destroyed of people who own businesses, who've gone from to zero revenue. I mean, they have no, they're, they're not taking any money in. Um, I mean, we have a, a, a housekeeper who she's lost like half her business. Um, and I, I actually think not for the best of reasons. Um, it's irrational decisions on some people's part, but it's, it's, I mean, like, how is she going to cope? What is she going to do? There's, so there's real, real damage, but that, for the sake of, as it will be put, for the most vulnerable. That's viewed as much more palatable than the other way around. So the utilitarian is viewed much more as, okay, well, no, there will be a few more deaths of, among the people of the most vulnerable, but um, other people will do better. That's, and he puts it as explicit utilitarian thinking seems beyond the pale, but it's not this issue of sacrifice to him that seems beyond the pale. It's the it's issue... Who? that you would sacrifice, of who's being sacrificed to whom, that's what's beyond the pale. And the Rawlsian one's palatable because it's, um, it's as they'll characterize, the vulnerable, the meek, the worst off. And that, that they have a claim and that other people should sacrifice, that's viewed as, yeah, who could question that? And that's how Ayn Rand views altruism. So yeah. in the sense that altruism is in the background, there's an issue about sacrifice. But the Rawlsian framework is viewed as, yeah, this is an acceptable sacrifice because it's from, again, from their framework, it's the, the non-meek, the non-poor spirit being sacrificed to the meek, the poor spirit, and that's okay. Yeah, and some of the way the utilitarian view has been put is it, it's the, uh, if, you, if you take economic considerations um, as as having real weight and real standing in the way we should think about these things and you put them in the balance, so to speak, with uh, people's lives, that there's already something callous about that. There's always something obviously wrong about that. Um, yeah, and again, that's, that's, still, that's all coming from that, the kind of altruist perspective. Um, let's see here. And that's what, that's why you know when I, I think what I think what's good about the article is that he he's putting out these different frameworks and asking us to think about it. Uh, but I don't think I mean if I, now the author doesn't always choose the title of uh, of of an article, so sometimes that's done by other people. Um, but it's how the coronavirus is shaking up the moral universe. And my view is it's not shaking up the moral universe at all, uh, in a sense. Yeah, okay. So some people might revisit some ideas, but. To shake up the moral universe is more what Ayn Rand is doing. To shake up the moral universe, in a sense, is to is to question the fundamental of these social philosophies, if you want to call it that, uh, and challenge the notion of altruism, and get and ask not just like should I follow this social philosophy or this one or this one or this one. It's more like why do we even need morality? What's it focused on? What are values? Why do we need them? Uh, and challenging the fundamental principle of, uh, you know, our moral universe, uh, which is altruism, like it or not, that's what it is. And, and she challenges that in a very uh, deep and fundamental way. Um, and I think that's the kind of shaking up. I mean, you may agree or disagree with what Rand's perspective is, on, but that's what it looks like to really grapple with uh, our moral philosophy and how to think about life. 
and he doesn't know what to do with it. So as you said yeah. earlier, he brings up Ayn Rand um, as the, okay, as he puts it under the title of libertarian. So there's, these are people supposedly who are rejecting both Rawls um, and rejecting the utilitarian framework. And that's certainly true of Ayn Rand. And he brings up and he ties her and this kind of viewpoint to Locke, the Enlightenment, the, found, the American founding fathers, which I think is right as well. Yeah. But there's no, um, no real appreciation that part of what they were trying to do, I think, and part of the way to think about the issue of rights and to think about the Declaration of Independence um, and its, its principles, that you have a right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that governments instituted among men to secure these rights. It's a perspective on government and on political power that it's not, it does not exist, that is, it does not properly exist to sacrifice some to others. And whether it's the kind of Rawlsian kind of view that you'll sacrifice uh, the able to the needy. I mean, the Rawlsian view in the end is very Marxist in, in morals, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It's that kind of perspective. Um, and the utilitarian one is that it's sort of the sacrifice any minority to the majority if it would make, uh, on average, supposedly people happy or better off. That it's when you have a right to the pursuit of your own happiness, it's the government is not there to dispense, sacrifice, to pick, as it's put colloquial, the winners and losers. It's there to protect everybody's rights equally. That, and, and so it, there's a fundamental equality, but not in the Rawlsian sense of equality of outcome, but equality of political standing, and that the government's job then is to secure everyone's rights. And the moment it starts thinking about who are we gonna sacrifice to whom, it's gone wrong. But he doesn't get that, that, that that's part of the perspective. And it's the kind of examples he brings up then are examples of people um, engaging in, well, okay, so what I'm allowed to do is sacrifice others to the pursuit of my own ends or whims. He brings up the spring breaker, but um, his last, I think it's the last example he has is kind of a more serious example. He brings up Rand Paul and the story where it was, look, you've been around someone with coronavirus, you need to get tested. And he's supposed to self-isolate. And he does it. He's going around and he uses the pool and the gym, I think, as well. And that is that kind of activity. If the scenario painted is right, that he's, he's been told you've been exposed, we've got a test, you're supposed to isolate until the test comes back, and he doesn't do it. That's um, jeopardizing the rights of other people. So the idea that, that Ayn Rand would think that this is morally pro okay, yes. certainly not, but not even politically. Like in a context where it's we've got a virus going around, we don't quite know what is happening. Um, if there's real reason to think you're contagious, you can't just go walking around infecting other people. That's not within your freedom or within your right. Precisely because rights are supposed to be, there's no sacrifice of one person to another. Um, and it's, so you, it doesn't give you the power to go around um, 
threatening people with you might get a yeah if you come by me you might get a deadly disease um but it like that he can't get that um it because it's always well somebody's got to be sacrificed yeah and so i mean when you think about i mean uh, when you think about the, what the, I mean, from the objectivist perspective, what the moral or social framework ought to be, it's individual rights, but that cuts both ways. It's not just that you have certain freedoms and you can go do th uh, things, but also when you think about what you're doing in your actions, you can't violate other people's rights too. And, and I think there, it's, so you have, <laughs> there is a responsibility that's involved uh, to that, to, you know, if you're really, if you're committed to the protection of your own rights, uh, you need to be committed to the protection of rights as such, uh, in, and in principle, and that involves certain responsibilities. Um, so we probably we might need to move on to the Q and A. Yeah, sure. Um, but just, just to, if we just say a word in, um, in, in conclusion. So part of what is interesting about this is that I think it, he's right that these are some of the strands of moral thinking that is going on. But what he's most right about is not something explicitly in the article, which is that everybody thinks about morality as it's about sacrifice. And the question is only who's gonna be sacrificed to whom? And is it gonna be everybody to the worst off? Is it gonna be the minority to the majority? Or is it gonna be in effect, self-centered people who can do whatever they want um, and trample over the lives, happiness, and rights of other people. And that's and this is unfortunately what you're most often taught, I think, today about morality. It's about figuring out what's the proper form of sacrifice. And, and this is, yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and this is, we're in 2020. I mean, Ayn Rand has been making that exact point since the 50s. This is all about what morality is about. You know, it's the, you know, yeah. Yeah, and you can't think properly, but you can't think in the American way. So about American system of government and American ideals, if you think life and morality is about sacrifice. Yeah, okay, so let's turn to questions. Yeah, let's take a look at some of the things we've got here. So we have a chat, but there's tons of stuff in the chat. I don't know if I'm Yeah, gonna... and there's one here. This might be good for you. Uh, is it fair to say that the utilitarian view is like the ancient Romans and that Rawls' view is like the Christians? And so I said for Aaron because Aaron did ancient philosophy. Um, I don't know what you mean by connecting the utilitarian view with the ancient Romans. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Do you mean, the, you mean philosophy as it was practiced in ancient Rome? I'm not sure exactly. I mean, it might mean sort of thinking of the Roman Empire as it, what's important is that it endures. And so you're thinking of that as um, they, they were willing to sacrifice minorities to majorities to keep sort of cohesion. And I, I suspect oh. something like that. Yeah. I, so I'm not sure because I would have to guess at that as well. Um, I think Raw. I mean, the Rawlsian view. Uh, I, so you're drawing a contrast: utilitarian Roman, Rawlsian Christian. And I don't know if that's the right contrast, but I mean, there's certainly uh, there's a reason why uh, Rawls's view resonates with the Christian audience. I mean, partly it's the focus on the vulnerable. We have to protect them, and if it involves uh, shrinking uh, liberties and a welfare state, you know, so be it. That's what we ought to do. And I think that that connection uh, is really there. 
the in the article he brings up who we didn't talk about because it's not very well known outside of academic circles the communitarians but i think some of them put ancient rome as thinking it's a communitarian ethic um so i'm getting in terms of thinking of this author of how he thinks about it i suspect that's where he would put um uh so the different he view would view it as different than than rawls and i view it as different as well okay Let's see here. Oh, so uh, so the person who asked that question said, "Yeah, you got it." So that's where that's the perspective he was indeed coming from. Okay, good. Well, that's good to know. So here's a question: Isn't it ironic that the advocates for sacrifice are not part of the group that would be sacrificed? Um, I mean, this is a, a point Ayn Rand made, uh, certainly in the Fountainhead, it comes up that where someone's speaking of sacrifice, there's going to be collectors of sacrifice. So it does, it sets up in some kind of way, um, a double standard in morality, um, because if everybody's sacrificing, who's collecting? And it, it, for altruism, her view was the double standard is, um, I mean, it's contained in, again, to go to the Marxist slogan, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. You don't count if you're able to produce, if you're able to work, to create values, to achieve life. You don't count because you're able. And the person from that whole perspective, the person who counts is precisely because he's not able to. So the double standard she put, because he's in need, he's unhealthy. Um, it, it's various kind of ways that it's the need will be cashed out. But it, as she put it in at the shrug, you get a double standard where the criteria for the moral elite. So the criteria where you can collect and not have to sacrifice is that you don't have value. It's, as you put it, it's the aristocracy of non-value. It's the, the unhealthy, the blind, the sick. I mean, if you think again of the religious kind of the, the lepers. The educated. Yeah. Yeah, there and it is. Yeah, go ahead. It's your pass key uh, is what you, what was the phrase you said your, your pass key to the moral elite uh, is lack of value. And doesn't mean you have no value, like you're you're worthless or them, but it's just it's the absence of something. It's the absence of education, the absence of money, the absence of healthcare, the absence of it's it's all of these things that, that it's a lack. Uh, that 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 puts you in the category of that you you can now get stuff. You have a uh, you have a moral right to get things from other people. Um, and if you're successful and you're educated and you have money and you have healthcare and stuff, that's what puts you in the category as your 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 obligation is to sacrifice. Um, yeah, so as an enduring phenomenon, you see this kind of double standard, but it is true. You find some people who, who um, advocate, this, advocate this kind of view and practice it. Like if you think for in religion, the so-called moral saints are often what they do is endure incredible hardship, penalize themselves, try to give away all their money, all their wealth, all their time. Some stop talking drink laundry waters, and it doesn't actually make it good yeah. that they think they're practicing sacrifice. Yeah. 
We'll take another question. This one's coming from, I guess we don't have a name here, just a phone, Galaxy Tab S6. Um, he says, he or she, uh, I find that if I bring up individual rights, many people have a very murky idea of what encompasses a right. It's hard to know where to go next. Yeah, and I can sympathize with that. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I have to say, I often feel this way that, you know, to point out that some policy or some law, it's like this violates individual rights. It's just <laughs> half of what's done, it violates individual rights. So it's a kind of hard, it's like in the culture, it's not well understood at all. Um, and a lot of it's muddied by thinking about, it's not just a right to freedom of action, that it's a right to things, uh, outcomes, uh, it's a right to healthcare. It's a right to a job. It's a right to things, stuff, other, and provided by others. Uh, and then you're often talking past each other or across purposes. If, if, I mean, you have to establish from the outset that, and this is a whole argument. So it's like you're, they're not going to go, oh, okay, now I get it. But to put it that you know, what rights designate are freedom of action, uh, and you have to explain why that is. I mean, if you want to get into it with, uh, with somebody or move the dial, move the, the dial a bit. But even if you have a better understanding of rights, so it certainly is true that people throw it out as it's, it's supposedly should end the argument that it, well, it violates rights. So yeah, but why is that the crucial thing? Yeah. Um, if you have a better understanding, if you understand where the principle comes from, it nevertheless will be the case that it will often put you at odds today with people. And that's for the moral issues that rights are anti-altruistic, yeah. um, or to put it positively, and uh, they're egoistic. So it's about, it's a right to the pursuit of your life, a right to uh, produce and keep the property that you've produced, and it's a right to pursue your own happiness. So it's, it rejects the idea that you're the servant um, of others, or that your life our time in some way belong to them, that it's what it's at the pursuit of your happiness, not the pursuit of the the welfare of the worst off, as it would be, say, for all. I mean, that that's what you're supposed to be doing. It's just part of what the a proper social contract would be from the Rawlsian perspective. The right perspective is no, it's you have your life that you're supposed to be trying to live. And, and that's the same of others. So you can't interfere with other people's lives, but you're not here to serve others. And so far, insofar as that's the moral framework that people think, but no, deep down, that's why you are here. Then rights, you're not going to win the argument it, because it, you have to address the moral issue of why is altruism right and egoism wrong? Yeah. And that's the th thing that most people won't challenge or don't know how to challenge. Uh, and I mean, if you're interested in challenging, look at Ayn Rand. She has the best case for this. Um, but another another thing that comes up in this context of rights, so suppose you even won that argument. They say, okay, so the government should only be uh, protecting individual rights. Individual rights are about freedom of action and so on. Suppose you even won that. What the what the discussion surrounding the pandemic has brought out for me, and, and it made this really, I mean, I know this, but it's, it's one of these things that really brings it to the fore. The application of rights is very non-obvious. Okay, so let's say we're, everybody's on the same page that the government should be protecting rights and so on. So what should we do? And then that's not, if that's not cut and dry, it's not obvious. I mean, there are, what, what a philosophy gives you is, is principles. Uh, <clears throat> but to apply the principles in practice uh, in a way um, that actually protects and secures rights and in a certain kind of a context, uh, it's not obvious, it's not textbook. 
it's not, well, obviously if you have freedom, you can just go, if I get Corona, I get Corona. Uh, but then does the government have the right to just simply lock down everybody in the economy? And I, I find that there's a lot of, a lot of disagreement is whether it's in social media or it's in the, in the press and so on. Um, even about people who broadly agree with an objectivist perspective, there's a lot of disagreement back and forth about like, is this a, a legitimate or not? I mean, I've heard people say, you know, you know some of the lockdowns are legitimate because, you know, you just can't go around spewing disease. And on the other hand, it's like, but I don't have the disease or I have no reason to think that I do. Why am I locked down? And it's, um, there are guideposts for this and there are real principles involved, but I don't think it's textbook how to answer this. Yeah, no issue about rights is, is they're not like written on the tablets, like the 10 commandments and I'll get, we got them now. Just you, they're principles you're formulating to organize society. And there's a lot to think about in order, I mean, the whole application of rights to a whole legal system and defining that is a complicated endeavor. And this is one aspect of what would be contemplated. But the, what's relevant for what we're talking about today, I mean, so we've got 45 minutes, we can't cover everything. It's the way that people are thinking about this. And so I would take the point as they're not thinking about it in terms of rights and the American principles, and what does the American form of government, what does it entail? It can't entail anything like what's happening in China or what happened in China. I mean, that's an authoritarian system in which the government has total power. And you're trying to think, um, okay, so what would it mean if we were taking rights seriously? That's the point. And that this, I mean, the article that we were talking about is can't really envision that. And I think it's not unique to this author. It's most people aren't even thinking of it in the right framework. That doesn't yet give you the answer, but it guarantees you won't get to the right answer. That is the American system of government's answer. If you're not even thinking properly about, well, what is the American system of government and what is different from all the other, I mean, why did they view it as this is a new form of government, not like the ones in Europe, certainly not like China in the past or today. And you can't answer that question unless you're thinking of it from the right framework. It doesn't automatically give you the answer, but it's, ne it's a, so it's necessary, not sufficient. Yeah. And the way in, in the way in which the, that kind of American framework gets up, he, he puts it in a libertarian framework. And then when you look at all the examples, it's, I do what I want, no matter its impact on other people. And that's not a rights perspective. If you had a rights perspective, you'd start to really grapple. Uh, and some of the questions are like, well, but can I go out? Does it matter whether this is somebody asked, um, Kyle asks, does the severity of the consequences of infection matter? Should I be required to self-isolate due to the common cold? So part of it is, well, if I've got a cold <clears throat> and I go to the grocery store um, and I could possibly get it somebody else the cold, is that the perspective in which you would think of, am I violating their rights versus if I give them, uh, you know, COVID-19 and yeah, or, or the plague or... <laughs> Or yeah, we'll actually and, yeah. talk about some of that, I think. Um, I mean, I'm pretty close to positive that we will, or pretty close to certain. This Saturday, we're having a, so we had a um, conference schedule for Chicago this Saturday, which obviously, like everything else, has been canceled. Um, and we're doing an online event, uh, I think 1 to 4.30 p.m., uh, Eastern time. And this, we're going to talk about some of the issues about 
uh, the role, proper role of government, thinking of it from an American perspective of the American system of government. Um, and that will be one kind of thing that will definitely come up about thinking more broadly about infectious disease, not just COVID-19. Yeah, and it's it's worth bringing out that uh, is um, a lot of this discussion that we're having is, you know, we're following the news, we're processing this stuff, neither of us are epidemiologists, uh, but we're, you know, kind of keeping track of what's going on and trying to offer um, a perspective from, from a philosophic, or offer a philosophic perspective rather than a medical one per se. So some of the medical questions that we get asked, some to the extent that they bear on rights, they also bear on what is the actual, what are the actual medical facts? And sometimes uh, uh, those need to be ascertained before even answering the question. So it's not a cut and dry answer, which is important. So let me just pop up a little poll here. We're trying to gauge uh, some of our audience's familiarity with Ayn Rand. Uh, so let me launch this poll. It's just one question. What's your familiarity with Ayn Rand's writings and ideas? And so even if you're a regular uh, uh, attendee of our, uh, webinars and so on, go ahead and answer so we can get a sense of uh, where you're coming from. And if you think uh, you're finding some value from these webinars, feel free to share uh, share the links uh, with others with others you might think would like it, and uh, we'd appreciate that. All right, any last thoughts? Um, well, we probably just should, so we, I mentioned that we have a, a online uh, sort of webinars conference on Saturday from 1 to 4.30 p.m. And then the next one of these will be Wednesday um, at, uh, what is it, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m.? Yeah, 11 p.m. Not 11 p.m., 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific. Yeah, so we're, we're running this series uh, Monday, Mondays and Wednesdays, at least for the time being. Uh, and so feel free to join. Yeah, in. and we've asked in the past about topics for webinars. So here we're doing for the next few weeks, as this is the major issue on everybody's mind, um, we're focused on this, but there's, there's so many aspects of what is going on with the pandemic and the response to it. So if you have uh, um, suggestions for aspects that we could talk about, you can send it, what is it, to webinars at einrand.org? Yeah, webinars, webinars slash einrand.org, yeah. Uh, and we'll and then it, and if you, you'll see uh, upcoming, but you can also click on the tab that says past webinars. So you can click on that. It's a whole list of things that we've done in the past you can watch. Uh, if you didn't get to see now. And since we're broadcasting this out um, on a number of different channels, uh, you can see this on YouTube as well. All right, yeah. well, thanks a lot for joining me, Ankar. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. And thanks everyone for coming. Thanks. Yeah, thanks everyone. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.